Hey, I just wanted to give a, uh, just like a super big underline to something that we communicated uh, this morning, and that is next week is going to be different. Really, really, really different. We've never done anything like this before. Never, never, never. The ministry festival is about people and people that that are investing their lives in ministry in all sorts of different ways, whether it's overseas, whether it's right here locally, whether it's handing out a bulletin or it's ministering to somebody, a community's child, or Reignite Hope or any of our other ministries or our high school ministries or our children's ministries. There are so many ways to get involved and to use your gifts. We've been talking about your gifts. We've been talking about, through Nehemiah, the value and importance of the, the need the, the brilliance that God brought a community of uniquely gifted people together that cannot accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish without you. So next week is going to be unique. We are going to end the service early. It's going to be a shorter sermon, Nehemiah chapter 8. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Any questions, let's move on past the sermon and see what's going on in the lives of people where you guys can get involved. Come on, a little more jazzy. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> Bring some volume there. Let's go. Come on, Godwin. I want you guys to cancel your Hawaiian vacation. Do another week. Go somewhere else another time. Be here next week, okay? Can I say that any more passionately? That is what's happening. We've got an amazing team, and I'm really excited about it because I truly believe that what God is calling for the next generation of this church is not through Bill, myself, Matt, Tommy, April, Denise, and all of our staff, but it's through you. It really is. And that's what's so exciting about it. So thank you, Godwin, for the music. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we are going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 7. And I'm excited about this message. This is a message that uh, was, someone came up to me and says, you must have put 100 hours in this message. Actually, I said, I don't recall putting 100 hours. Actually, a lot less than that, because truly, honestly, this is a message that, um, is really close to me and my heart and what I believe so strongly in, and that is replacing yourself. Nehemiah chapter 7 is about replacing yourself. See, I believe the sign of a mature leader is the ability to give away opportunity and to give away credit for success. I really believe that. That's the sign of a mature leader. you got to be able to give something away. It's not what you have, it's what you give away. That's the sign of maturity. I really believe that. That's the life that I want to continue living in ministry. Two questions you need to ask yourself every morning. Who's next and who should get the credit? It's not about you. It's just not about you. Insecure leaders think they build what they build for themselves. And they fail to see their role in light of God's bigger plan. It's true. It's it's true for all of us. Many of us are overwhelmed by insecurity. And insecurity leads us to think that it's about ourselves. It drives us to make it about ourselves. And yet, insecure leaders think that they need all the credit. Insecure parents think it's about them and not their kids, that, our, that my kids drive my purpose, that make me look good. Insecure leaders think they're irreplaceable. Not true. In Nehemiah chapter 7, the wall is complete. The job is done. 
And you would think in this moment in Nehemiah chapter, what you open up to and read, Nehemiah ran through the city of Jerusalem to a parade, people lining the aisles, singing a song of exultation in Nehemiah because he's the guy that built the wall. And that's not what you read. That's not what happened. That's not how the story ends. It's just beginning. The wall's complete. The city is now ready for operation. It's about ready to function the way God wants it to function. And Nehemiah does something absolutely strategic. I listen to several messages online of series of Nehemiah, preachers preaching on Nehemiah. Everybody misses chapter 7. Every single one of them goes from 6 to 8. They go from Bill's message, opposition, to joy of the Lord when the law was read in chapter 8. And Nehemiah 7 is missing. The commentaries don't even give that much information. And yet what I realize is that chapter 7 is the chapter. Because I'm preaching it, right? Everybody thinks that, right? Oh, that's right, it's not about me. But here in Nehemiah chapter Nehemiah chapter 7, here it is. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, it's done. Completion. Mission accomplished. What does Nehemiah do? The gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. There's appointing going on. There's replacing. And then in verse 2, it says, what did he do? Then I appointed Hanani my brother. And Hananiah, it says, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem. Who's in charge of Jerusalem? Nehemiah was. He's the governor. He's the man in charge. And yet what we find here is he's replacing himself. And then if you read a little further, they begin to align these gatekeepers and these singers and these Levites, this little small band of an army that, God, that Nehemiah builds up in order to watch the gates of the city they were still vulnerable to attack. Our job is not done. It continues through others. That's the point. And so it says that they appointed these gate guards over the nighttime so to watch the traffic coming in and out. When it's sunny or hot, we can open the gates. And then it goes on to say in verse 4, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses weren't built. There was no people in the city. Now we need people to move in and take on the objective of the mission of the city. In every single area, Nehemiah replaces himself. Gatekeepers, governors, and people to grow the mission of the church. In each one of those areas. And that's the way Nehemiah replaced himself. In three ways. And by the way, when I look around this room, there are all three of those here. We, as a church, are committed to having gatekeepers, governors, and growers of the mission. And so let's look at those. Let's look at them together. Um, it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it, by the way? Because you think when you're successful and you're in a position of leadership, really, to give away the credit, to give away the opportunity, is very counterintuitive. Yet Nehemiah, like many other great heroes and leaders of amazing movies and great historical events, gave away their power. I mean, I just thought of a few great movies. Maximus 
Decimus Meridius. It's not about him. It was about restoring Rome, right? So he had power to give away the power, right? I, I thought of, um, uh, I also wrote down, um, who's the other guy? William Wallace, remember? Questionable historically, but in the movie, most certainly, jo- uh, William the Bruce, or excuse me, um, Robert the Bu- Bruce was to reign, not William Wallace. He was just there to fight the ar- with the army. It's true with Joan of Arc, Jesus of Nazareth, each one of these. Then I thought of Jason Bourne and I crossed him because it really was about Jason Bourne. So we're going to skip him. But great heroes and leaders give away their position and the credit. Todd Henry does this accidental creative podcast and he talks about leader echoes. Well, what's that's interesting. Bill turned me on to it, so I listened to this very short little podcast, and he talked about how uh, leadership and legacy are not just about what you do, but how you do it. It's determined by a series of small choices that you make. Remember in my blurb I said that you don't wake up one day and replace yourself. You don't wake up this morning and go, I'm going to replace myself. No, it's the small choices in your life that you make now. It's the, you start in high school. You start thinking in high school and on your way to college about who's coming up behind me as I lead my life and as I head in a direction to serve God, I want to bring others along because one day I want to be able to look back what Todd says, look back and not say, what was written on my tombstone about me? Oh, it was really nice. Some really neat things were written about you on your tombstone. No, it was about who lines the roadway as the hearse drives by. Who's going to be lining the highway? Who are you impacting? And I thought, that's precisely Nehemiah chapter 7. So let's jump in. First one, the continued threat and the need for gatekeepers. See, if you go back to chapter 6 and you look at verse 15 all the way to the end of chapter 6, Nehemiah's finished the wall, but guess what it says? Tobiah, one of the enemies, had family living behind the city walls. Tobiah was no longer a threat, right? Because he was outside the city and the walls were built. He got himself into the city through family relationships. And letters were going back and forth, so he was getting intel about what was going on inside the city. It was an internal issue, and the battle continues. And that's why Nehemiah said we need gatekeepers. we got to protect the flow of information between the enemy and what's going on inside. See, this is a spiritual spiritual perspective on our own lives. Don't, don't ever miss that. Sure, there's a real city. It's absolutely, it functioned like a real city. But guess what? There's a spiritual analogy, and it's your life. You're like the city, and you have a wall, and you have gates. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 3 and listen to the message that I preached on the various gates and how the gates have significant spiritual meaning. They weren't just simply gates that someone said, well, let's name it the sheep gate. Let's name it the fish gate. Let's name it the east gate. Let's name it the dung gate. No, those were real names because they had spiritual significance because each one of them represented something to the people. And most certainly in your life, there is a sheep. It's Jesus. And if he's not firmly in place you're vulnerable. There are all sorts of gates. The east gate, 
the, the, the Golden Gate. And he lists them, and each one of them represents an area of strength or an area of vulnerability. And that's why we need gatekeepers and we need to protect ourselves, we need to protect our community. Where are we most vulnerable? Be asking that question, that's number one. And it's all sorts of things. I, I was thinking of what those actually represent, those gates that can represent your finances, your relationships, maybe an issue with anger or strong boundaries with the opposite sex or, or, or crumbling boundaries or dismiss, dismissing the truth in an area of your life where you're no longer listening to God's word. Or, or it could be spiritual dryness or temptation or hopelessness, and you're in that moment right now. That's a place of vulnerability. That's why Nehemiah put gatekeepers over the gate. But the gates also have gatekeepers. And who are the gatekeepers? Here it is. The gatekeepers was this small band, this army of individuals that Nehemiah replaced with the workers that were to be the gatekeepers as they built the city walls he put these people, they were singers and Levites, and they were also these gatekeepers. And these were individuals that became warriors for the city. Well, back then, physically, it was about defending from an actual enemy. But guess what? Now let's jump forward, and let's look into the 21st century and the spiritual implication of that. And guess what it is? Prayer. It's about prayer. It has to be. Because prayer is the protection. That's what the scriptures teach us. All throughout the scripture, a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. If you're trying to put the strength of your life in the hands of something that you do, it's in the wrong place. See, another scripture, the horse is made ready for the battle, but the victory rests in who? I mean, easy answer. That's a softball, right? I just love that. To the Lord, Right? It's, 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 in, it's in 2 Kings chapter 6 where it says this, And Elisha prayed, Oh, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around whom? Elisha. The guy wasn't alone. He had an army around him. It was a fire-breathing, powerful army of an angelic host because of what? Prayer. See, we've got a prayer ministry that is deeply embedded in this church. Secret prayer people, care ministries, powerful. Prayed me all the way through this year. Today, this month, marks a full year of, of going through my illnesses in this last year. A full year. And I thought about this. I owe the credit of what's, where I am today because of the prayer that came out of this church. The gatekeepers of our church are prayer words. The gatekeeper of your family is prayer. The gatekeeper of your business is prayer. You pray protection over your children, over your friends, over your employees, over your ministry, over your grounded group. See, that's number one. And Nehemiah knew that, and he chose wisely, and it worked. Now, number two, moving on. Oh, by the way, Jesus calls his own disciples to do. Stay here, watch, and pray while I go pray. And they fell asleep and became vulnerable. 
if they'd stayed awake and prayed, when the enemy came in, they probably might have potentially had a different response. I don't know. I'm making that up. I'm not sure. It's not in the text. But I wonder. So the second thing I learned in this passage in chapter 7 is that Nehemiah turns to his own brother, Hanani, and the, and, and the commander of the fortress, Hananiah, to be in charge of Jerusalem. Co-governors, maybe, potentially, or one to succeed the other. But Nehemiah replaced himself. And number two, the first thing that I want you to see is the continued threat of the gatekeepers, fiercely loyal to pray in defense of attack. The second thing I want you to know is leadership over the city is the governors, well-equipped to lead the movement. And here's where it gets tricky. Why is Nehemiah relinquishing his powerful position of governorship over the city to his brother and Hananiah? Because he knew something. And this is what he knew. He knew two things. I'm required to go back to Persia. The movement will not continue in the same direction it's headed under the same leadership. It needs new leadership. It needs a different style of leadership. If business people can understand this, I did a little study and research this week, and I discovered what comes out of the business world is that leaders in upper, upper echelons of business and industry frequently fail because they cannot change roles as Nehemiah did. Once the walls were complete, Nehemiah knew that it would take a different kind of leader to move the mission forward. It's true of any organization. So when we hand off leadership to our children, it's going to go a different direction. But if we've done a good job of replacing ourselves, it may look a little different, but it's going in the right direction. And we need to not be insecure, but be confident in the choices that we made to raise up our young people for the next generation. The person who began the company is not the one to hold it together into the future. I've heard it said many a times that leaders fail in two areas. They don't finish well, and they don't replace themselves. And I've seen that over and over and over again. And I am set on a course to not repeat that. And I need prayer, and I need to be replacing myself like you need to be replaced, like we need to be replaced. Every one of us on staff is asking the same question. Not what am I doing into the future, but who am I bringing along so that one day there is a good transition of replacing ourselves. Every single one of us. Elon Musk is the example. Wall Street Journal read an article September, talked a little bit about the fact that, yeah, it's easy to blame the economics or blame other people, but here's the ego-busting truth. Sometimes the person that started the business is not the one to continue to grow the business because you don't have all the gifts. You're not good at everything. I'm not good at everything. Just because you're an idea guy, just because you're a finance guy, doesn't mean you're the, ma the management guy. Does that make sense? And so Tesla needs a different leader. 
He's being forced into giving up the chairmanship position in order to grow the company. One particular article is talking about the fact that Steve Jobs had Tim Cook. Elon Musk does not have a number two guy. He needs a number two guy. Elon, if you're out there, I want to encourage you, get a number two guy. The legacy that you leave behind, these amazing organizations, SpaceX, the things you're doing to advance our future as a country, as a world, fantastic. Get a number two guy because you're not going to live forever. And your whole vision of a great future is dependent on number two guy. I mean, I, I, I'm seeing that over and over again. Another Wall Street Journal article, I have it on my desk, and I'm just staring at it. I'm just looking. I, I didn't want to read it. I just stared at it. And this is the article. Um, CEOs should not hang around too long. I'm, I'm not going to read that. God, what are you saying in this moment, in this season of my life? So I just sat there for weeks, literally. So I finally read it this morning. Seriously, I just read it. They should, they, CEOs should replace themselves with four, between, uh, by 4.8 years. They should, they should be a CEO for 4.8 years. You know why? The, now I'm not sure it's exactly true, but the article says basically this. Because in the first 4.8 years, you look externally. You invite people to weigh in. And after 4.8 years, what do you do? You become internal, and you think you have all the answers, and you put yes men all around you, or yes women. There's some genius to that. Think about that. As a church, we are committed to this in every area of ministry. We're giving away credit, giving away ministry. I have worked under five senior pastors in the last 32 years of my life. Five. Three are washed up. One has begun a succession plan to replace himself. Three out of five will not leave a good legacy. Three out of five. One is. And the other one, I bet he will too. It's a man of character. You know, um, Jesus did this. He did it in chapter 3. He didn't do it in chapter 16. So when you go to Mark chapter 3, and you read the words that Jesus called his disciples to himself, pros kaleotai, which means to call alongside, kaleo, to call. He called them alongside to be Thelo, the ones he wanted or willed, he desired. He, thelo means literally, I willed them to be close to me. That's what he did. He called them. Why? Because he knew something about leadership. He knew in chapter 3, not in chapter 16 of Mark. Chapter 16 is way too late to start thinking about replacement. Chapter 3 is the time. At the beginning of his ministry, he began thinking about, okay, I'm going to begin to, probe, as Coleman in Master Plan of Evangelism says, proportion my time so I'm not flitting around here and there and jumping into this and dealing with the critics and running over there like Nehemiah. I don't have time for you guys. I'm not coming down off the wall. You know, go pound salt. I am not coming down. 
I got a work to do, and it's a good work. I'm staying focused. Jesus stayed. He proportioned his time around these men that he poured his life into, as Coleman said. Men were his method. The method, how he got where he got, were these individuals. Not his great preaching. Not anything else. The great movement of the church was not about Jesus, but about 12 individuals that literally took off running across the known world. And within a few 50 years, the churches began to spread like crazy. Jesus didn't do that. He was one guy. Now, he did something else. But he didn't do that. It's followers, not fans. If all you have is fans around you, you're missing the point. This is discipleship. Denise, my wife, says, talk about discipleship. That's what the whole series is about. It's about discipleship. It's about bringing others close so that you can mentor and encourage them to walk with Christ as you walk with Christ. So one day, you can look back and see that there's others that you've challenged to run the race with. And we'll continue running the race. Does that make sense? That's, what, that's why we keep coming back to this idea of discipleship, raising up learners and followers. And guess what? Jesus in Matthew, Mark chapter 3 calls his disciples to be followers. But then later at the end, when it's all said and done, these disciples become apostles. You know what the word apostle means? One cent. He sends them, John 17. I send them into the world as you sent me into the world, Jesus prays to his Father. I mean, this is the whole point. There's one final last little thing here. And it's finding people to carry out the initial objective of the city. Become a grower. A grower. Nehemiah needed growers. An empty city is not going to accomplish the mission of God. All it is, is an empty city. An empty church is just a freaking empty church. That's all it is. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's filling it with growers, people that want to propagate the mission. And so he's got, it says here, he's, he's got the genealogies in front of him. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first when I just began recording and these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles. These are the faithful families. These are the ones that bought in. These are the early adopters. Let's go. And so he lists them, and he lists them by name with their sons and their daughters. These individuals had godly children. There's nothing wrong with godly children. In fact, that's the objective. And I love the fact that Nehemiah even replaced himself with his own brother, not because it was some nepotism going on, but because his brother, he knew, was a faithful man of God like Hananiah was. It says he feared God and was faithful and didn't follow other, what other people and feared what other people thought and said. In fact, the two great mentors in my life that are both preachers are in the, currently in the process of replacing themselves with their sons. And you go, well, that's nepotism. No, it's not. It's just good fathering. It's just good leadership. It's good Nehemiah. He's leaving a legacy by raising up. And I, 
this is a prediction. I don't know. None of my kids are here. But all three of my kids have a heart for ministry. Very different than my wife and I's heart for ministry. Very different. Your kids are on a different track. It, it may not look like yours. Maybe they're still in process. But maybe one day they'll come up. It's not going to be like yours. Don't expect them to look like you or act like you or dress like you or anything else. If you know my son, you know what I'm talking about. Love that guy. Long hair, hippie from the throwback from the 60s, drives a VW bus, 79, hippie green. I'm not going to change that. But I'll tell you what, that young man has a heart for God like my daughter Brittany and my daughter Brooke. And their ministries are going to be so radically different than ours. But I have a prediction. If we're doing the right thing, they may someday be part of something like this or this. So the last thing here in chapter 7 is he found these faithful families and he aligned them, figured it out, and he wanted to backfill the city, an empty city. He wanted it to grow. He wanted it to grow like I want this to grow. We, Bill and I, James and Matt, we want this to grow. Denise, we're growing ministry. Why? Because we like people, we like fans. No, we want followers. Because the mission of God is stronger when there is a core and powerful growing community. So let's get growing. Let's go for it. Here's the question. Who's not here that needs to be here because they're missing out? Oh, be careful. I didn't say here, as in this room, as in this service, as if this is it. This is part of it. This is one aspect of it. But what you got going in the mom's group, in a grounder group, in a men's group, in a prayer meeting, in, in your high school group, your FCA meeting, the places you impact other people, guess what? That's it. That's where we want influence. That's where we want to keep growing. Who is next? Who's not here? Who's not here that needs to be here? That's what we've got to be asking ourselves. Keep asking yourselves. Is your wall, your wall, your rebuilding project, your business, your ministry, your life, your family. We often separate the secular from the spiritual, don't we? Like, that's my work. No. In God's economy, the secular is the spiritual. Why? Because the objective of the city is Isaiah 49, verse 6. You are to be a light to the nations. How else are they going to see what God looks like unless we grow a city to mirror the glory of God? Go be the light of the nation in all these different places and all these different arenas, not just here, where you are. That's what the festival's about. In fact, when wars, when nations went to war, they'd take their idols with them. And then they carry this stupid little idol, this wooden idol or a stone idol. Or, and whoever had the biggest idol had the greatest advantage to win the war, which is totally meaningless. There's nothing in a block of wood or a piece of stone that has power. But when God calls Joshua to go into Jericho, not because he hates Jericho, but because he wants the nations to see what a real God looks like that has real power. And when the walls fall down, everybody should have fallen on their knees like the harlot that lived in the city that said, I know your God, I know your God, and was spared. God would have spared everybody else. That's the unwritten part of the story that the critics don't want to tell about our God. 
that I guarantee you if the city had fallen on their face and said, that's a real God, that's real power, every single one of them would have turned to God and their lives would have been spared. So, who's next? I got some steps to replace yourself. Talk about the future. We talk way too much about the past. If you just start talking about the future, what, what's coming up, what you dream of, guess what? You're going somewhere. People like to follow people that are going somewhere, right? Number two, include others in your dreams and visions for the future. Just include them. Get them involved. Let's talk about it. Let's dream together. Let's go off coffee and dream together. Ask others to help you in your endeavor. So I want you to come along with me. Just, just check it out. See what's going on. Model. Then model for others how you would do what you do. How do you do what you do? Just show them. It's what Jesus did. Challenge them to step up. It's time. And someone came up to me at the end of the service last week, this morning, and said, you know, the greatest thing for me is fear. People just are afraid to step into leadership. They're afraid. I want to replace myself, but they're so afraid. I said, sometimes what you need to do is just take a sabbatical. And what it does is it forces somebody else to take your role. So you just go, okay, a reluctant leader is a good leader. So, okay, I, I've, you know what to do, and I, I'm going to be over here, and you, you do it. No, I can't do it. No, you can do it. And once they're in it, guess what? All of a sudden, un, un, unrevealed power starts showing up in their life. Last story, and we're done. I wanted to really make this important today. And I asked Denise, I need a story. And she goes, well, tell Jesus a story, the discipleship. And then we got in a fight over it, and I ended up using it in Mark chapter 3, and it was brilliant. And uh, I said, no, that's not, that's not good enough. So I went to bed last night, got up this morning, and had an hour to kill, like the rest of you. Like, what am I going to do? It's like 7 o'clock. I should be, like, going to the beach here. Yeah, it starts at 8.30, but it feels like 8. And so I got an hour, so I'm walking around the house and moving stuff and moving things to the garage that need to be in the garage because we have this unwritten rule that a lot of the things that I love are supposed to live in the garage, like my bicycle, my motorcycle, my turntable and those JBL speakers I had in high school, my Yeti cooler that I love, that I worship sometimes way too much, goes with me on every trip, whether it's an hour or whatever. See, the ice is still in there. And on and on and on and on. And Denise was in Africa, and I had this a couple a year ago, and I had this idea, I'm going to bring my turntable and my JBL speakers in the living room. I'm going to bring my motorcycle in, too. I'm just, I can imagine her showing up going, what is your stuff doing in this house? It's a bachelor pad. Come on. So that did, I, it didn't happen, but I thought about it. But I went to the garage this morning. I was taking some stuff, and there, there it was, right in front of me. There, there's the story. There's the real story. It's a picture of my father. I've been thinking about this. It's really interesting. For the last few weeks that I don't want to forget my father. It's been August 3rd. He died. August 3rd, 2018, 92 years of age. I didn't want to lose his memory. And I feel like I'm starting to lose his memory. Uh, not because he was a bad dad, but just because things get in the way. And 
it seems like a lot's happened since then, and so it seems like it's been ages since he's passed away, and it hasn't been. And I have his memorial service. Kim, you put it all together, and, and you, you put this beautiful picture of Dad right there, your husband, and right on the front of this memorial service thing, and it sits in my, on my desk, and every time I go to the, to the garage for all my cool stuff, there's my dad. There's my dad. It's a great shot of my dad. And, um, and I picked it up and looked at it again this morning because I know that my dad didn't wake up one day toward the end of his life and say, it's time to replace myself. The many choices of his life led him to replace himself with my brother, my two sisters, and I. That will carry on his legacy. It's, it's fly fishing in Idaho. It's, it's um, up in British Columbia, helicopter skiing off glaciers, doing really crazy, dangerous, semi-dangerous and super dangerous things. It's getting shot in a blind by another shotgun across the pond, duck hunting. It's all the events that he took me along, teaching me how to play the trumpet, play backgammon, cribbage, talking about, son, have you, ever, you, you want to learn how to invest money? He taught, me how to invest, he taught me how to make money. My father taught me how to be a good steward of the money that I have and how to grow my money and how to make more money. He taught me that. It's not a bad thing. He taught me a lot of life lessons. He taught me, he taught me how to get back up when you fail. Life lessons. He taught me how to have courage and step out when you feel like you can't do anything right and you're not qualified, step out. Son, you can do anything you want. I believe in you. See, that's the kind of person I want to be to my kids. I want someday not to leave them things, not to just simply have done things with them, but one day, they reach out and go, where's that picture, Dad? Because that's an important picture. Because he taught me something. My dad was less than perfect. Far from perfect. But I'll tell you what, he was a true man and a great dad. And I want to live the same kind of life. And I want to replace myself with people that will come along and have learned some lessons about what it really means to be a follower of Christ and live out the mission of being a light to the nations, how to steward money, how to use your gifts, how to invest in the right things, people, and on and on it goes. So let's pray. Fathers who go to the table, the table represents the great love of the Father, our Father, you, Father, our Father, the great love, who because of who we are and our need, went to the cross for us, sent Jesus to the cross for us. So we go now, we go to this communion table, we take the bread and dip it in the juice, and 
it means something. It means something real because it's Jesus to us who's saying, you got this. You can keep going. You can push forward. I know you can. And I'm with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus says to us. So we go. Lord, we go, and we, we meet with you this morning. And we re-up our call to replace ourselves in Jesus' name.